because it was like, Jesus Christ, what's, mm. what's this? What's this? This black woman in front of me, big breasts, small waist, big ass, big mama. And she's gone from the church covering her up in a gown, which is what they used to do. She, they would put her in a gown because it would cover up a Rubenesque figure. Because mm. when she would move, you know, she's giving it the... She was moving and everything was... So her breasts were going from left to right. Yeah. Her hips were swinging from left to right in opposite directions. And she was a big, beautiful, Rubenesque, mm. lovely voice coming out of this dark, gorgeous woman. Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and it's so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm chatting to Sarah Brown, an incredible vocalist with the likes of Simple Minds, Duran Duran, Roxy Music, Stevie Wonder and many, many more. Sarah is letting her in on her adoration of Mahinia Jackson and her upcoming tribute album to the Queen of Gospel. It's an immensely powerful, inspiring, uplifting conversation with an incredible person. First, a little thank you to the kind supporters of the show. Founding sponsor and absolutely crucial supporters, illustrationx.com. Fantastic illustration agency supporting a whole broad range of animators, illustrators, mural artists, street artists, fashion designers, lettering specialists, you name it. They've got them all. Check them out now at illustrationx.com. We provide an industry insight every single time and uh, I'm going to give my own little tip this time and I think it's about comparison, um, the thief of joy. So often now in today's environment, in today's creative industry, I see people comparing themselves and doubting themselves at crazy early stages and not affording themselves the time to just relax, enjoy and understand and live with their own creativity for a little while, work out where it fits in the world. I think um, there's nothing wrong with getting a job full-time, part-time, doesn't matter what it is, washing dishes, working in the bank. I think if there's something you can do that's in structured hours that gives you plenty of free time to work on your creativity, do it. There's no rush. There's no failure in that whatsoever. I've worked in countless jobs in factories, in filing, in data, and none of it was particularly glamorous or exciting, but it paid the bills. It enabled me the freedom to not make rash decisions and crack on. And because of that, I created purely in accordance with what I was feeling, what I was into, what I was passionate, what was going on in the world around me. And I was able to carve out a very distinct style that could only be my own. And yeah, it's going to fall foul of trends at times, but more importantly, there's always going to be a place for it. So I just wanted to pass that on because today's guest, Sarah Brown, illustrates that in emphatic fashion. And she talks about how she spent so long toiling in her own kind of fragility and lack of confidence for various reasons, as we'll get deep into. Um, so. I hope it's going to be a really scintillating, valuable, sizzling conversation that really drives home that message. And that's courtesy of illustrationx.com. Uh, very kindly also, the AOI.com are very often supporters of this show. Go and check them out. The Association of Illustrators supporting the illustration industry with a broad range of industry events, business support and creative advice. You name it, they do it. Go and check them out. The AOI.com. 
So welcome, 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 welcome back. How are you doing? How have you been? I hope you're well. I hope you've been staying creative and getting on with life in these crazy turbulent times. If it's not pandemics, it's politicians having parties during pandemics. If it's not politicians having parties during pandemics, it's the same damn government cutting higher education creative course funding by 50%. Don't get me started. I hope you're well. I hope you're not letting all this toxicity on Twitter and everywhere else haul you down because there's also really good stuff in all those places. And there's goodness in the world and it's out there and it's going on. So focus on it. And yeah, I hope you're good. Um, so today's podcast is an interesting one. We will get into it in more depth shortly. Um, but it's been in the can for about three years, this conversation. And it's kind of timeless, so I knew it would always come good at some point. But because of COVID, um, I had to very challengingly bide my time because it's one of the most powerful conversations I've ever had the pleasure of taking part in. So I had to sit on this. We'll get into the into into depth with that shortly. Um, so what's been going on in your world? Let me know. Um, I had a lot of correspondence going on in the week. There's been a couple of things. So I had this piece in Creative Review and it was about focus. So the first Monday back after Christmas, I came back into the studio, which currently for me is a spare room in Salisbury, where I've, I've recently moved to from Manchester. And I don't get on too well with the whole spare room working thing. If I'm honest, I need either an external studio space, I need to be in a cafe or I need to be in a some kind of dedicated space where I can walk in through the door, close it behind me and let loose, whether it's inks, words, just sitting there and getting inspired. Um, that's what I need personally. So I started to write about my lack of focus on that day and how I spent an entire Monday very scatterbrained, flitting from insignificant task to insignificant task to LinkedIn to Twitter to Instagram to my email and back all around that turgid loop and and what kind of happens with these things is I think when I share these things that are heartfelt or emotional it's interesting but there always seems to be someone who's watching at the right time and picks it up um, and I was able to get this piece picked up for creative review so that's out there now it's about focus and creativity and the importance of clearing the mind so that you're able to either concentrate on drawing the task at hand, um, making something or just freeing up your mind so that it is blank and that you might be inspired and when you get inspired to do a certain thing you can entirely focus your energies on that. Um, and it's just a very interesting topic so you can go and have a have a look at that now you'll see it on my twitter or you can just search creative review ben talent i'm sure it'll pop up there they've got a great seo great website over there because they're a fantastic bunch of people doing cool things so that's something you can go and have a look at now um so again it's been a little gap like i said since the last episode with laura hope um i hope you enjoyed that one i thought it was a fantastic conversation about changing direction um in laura's case there were a lot of realizations during covid i think a lot of you guys will be familiar with that and i got some great feedback on the episode so go back and listen to that now like i said there are going to be longer gaps i'm doing this more sporadic now as and when the opportunities come up that said there are a couple of episodes in waiting which i think are going to blow your socks off so i hope it won't be so long next time but believe me sarah brown today is worth the wait um 
So the creative condition isn't going anywhere. Just like I said, it's gonna it's gonna be bigger gaps in between. Um, what else? What else? So I, I have been working on um, my new fiction book, which is gonna be coming out on the seventh of April. So it's called Stories for the Apocalypse: Notes on the New Normal. Um, it's very much a, a zeitgeist kind of tapping into this feeling that we're all a little anxious. We're all on the brink. There's a lot of people spiraling into madness. Um, and the irony was when I when I named this whole project Stories for the Apocalypse, it was long before COVID. Um, I felt like there was already a sentiment of people just just crackling like a you know like a loose wire, just ready to fizz. I think the pace of life now and the stress that we're all exposed to and, and the, just the demands on us day to day and the kind of imposter syndrome and the comparison that's going on out there and the celebrity culture and all these things to be seen, to be doing and all this technology we have at our fingertips now, there's less time than ever for chilling out and relaxing and I think that people were, you know, falling into this kind of mania that I was seeing going on left, right and centre. Um, so particularly post-COVID, this book is very, very relevant and it's a, it's right on the barrier between horror, kind of a suburban horror, and dark comedy, which is what it is. There's a lot of laughs in there, but it's, it's also quite grotesque and it's very much looking at the way people cope and capitulate in equal measure in these times that we live in. So that's going to be coming out on April 7th. It's going to be an ebook, an audiobook format for the time being and the plan is with stories for the apocalypse that there's going to be volumes of seven or eight stories released as he and audiobooks build into this big paperback all singing all dancing uh, volume of let's say 30 stories when the time comes so i'm very excited about that you may have seen the images that i've been sharing around of me under a ghost cheat very warped up in the woods in lancashire before i left that neck of the country um, I had a lot of fun doing that photo shoot with Danny Ellison and I wanted to get the idea across that there is spookiness, there is um, body horror, there is psychological horror going on in these books, but it's also anchored very much to the real world and suburban horror and what's going on around us. And I was fortunate enough to get a lovely uh, endorsement quote for the front cover from Charlie Adlard, who you may have listened to on the podcast, who uh, was the artist for the comic books in The Walking Dead and now... Uh, that was a huge thrill to get Charlie to look at the stories and, and bring me some feedback. So keep an eye on the social media at Ben Talon. You're going to be seeing all that stuff coming up soon. I'm going to be slow releasing book covers and video trailers and quotes from people who said very kind things about the stories. Um, but it's going to be out there. It's going to be very affordable. It's going to be an ebook and audiobook. And I, I think you're really going to enjoy this if you've got the dark sense of humor that I do or even a, a modicum of that. So get your feedback at the same address at Ben Talon on social media. Drop me an email, hello at bentallon.com. If you've been up to something cool, give me a nudge. Let me know. Tell me about it. At worst, I'll probably retweet it and, and give some feedback. At best, maybe there's an episode for the podcast waiting to happen. Who knows? Um, I also, before we move on to Sarah, just wanted to mention there was a big Twitter thread that went off in the week, and I'm not used to this happening. I'm kind of used to popping stuff out there and getting about one or two likes and then, you know, tumbleweed after that. But I shared a piece which was talking about the value of our industry, the creative industries, to the UK economy, um, which comes in a whopping $117 billion according to stats in 2019. Um, and that represents 6% of the entire economy overall, which was up 43% from 2010. So that's a huge expansion of our industry. And guess what? The government cut the funding to higher education creative courses by 50%. It's beggar's belief, isn't it? So it makes you kind of go, what the 
what we're talking the language we're bringing money into the country what is this so i tweeted about it and i posted a long thread which comes from my new non-fiction book which may not be out for a little while yet but i'm very much working on it full steam ahead now which i've been trying to do for about seven years since champagne and wax crayons came out and it's finally moving it's finally alive it's going to be a challenging work because it's entirely different to champagne and wax crayons it's going to be non-fiction again it's going to be called the creative condition just like this podcast and it's going to be a massive exploration of exactly that the create the creative condition so creativity and the human condition all the facets of creativity and how it behaves looked at through the prism of a number of guests from the show and a lot of other people who i've encountered both in and outside the creative industry i think you're really going to love that book so i'll be releasing excerpts and updates on that as it moves along and then release dates in due course but there was a thread that just kicked off i think people felt really passionately just like i did about the cuts to the funding for the arts and how preposterous and damaging that is for mental health for society in general for young people for our industry ultimately too and it deeps deep dives into the reasons for that so i would love to keep that moving so again i've pinned that to my at the top of my twitter at ben talon love you to go and take a look and get me some feedback on that but well, that's enough about me that's enough of the business stuff another quick thank you to the sponsors the aoi.com and illustrationx.com before we move on to this lady so sarah brown so sarah is a, a wonderful vocalist from london and she's been singing for years and her singing voice is absolutely spellbinding it's something else um i met sarah in 2019 through andrew cotterell who you may remember i was working with on a collaborative exhibition called lend me your ear so lend me your ear was a photography and illustration collaboration andrew's been photographing for over 30 years now the who's who of music for the likes of mojo and q and sony music and all kinds of album covers and uh, and all that and he's a wonderful warm person and I met Sarah through Andy when we were putting our exhibition on. So Sarah sings a lot with Simple Minds. We'll, we'll get into her career story in a moment, but she sings with like Simple Mind and Pink Floyd and George Michael and, and many, many more. And um, so I met her back then and, and we got talking and we got talking about Sarah's upcoming project, which is what we're covering today. Um, and Sarah has this lifelong affiliation with Mahalia Jackson. And she told me about this, and, and to my shame, I wasn't totally aware of Mahalia Jackson beyond a vague recognition of the name. Um, so she's going to tell us all about the life of Mahalia Jackson. And the reason the podcast is out today is that it's 50 years since Mahalia's passing, uh, a real loss for the world. And it's an upcoming tribute album to what's commonly known, who's commonly known as the Queen of Gospel. And it's one of the most uplifting, powerful conversations I ever had. And I, I just think there was synchronicity and timing. And, you know, this was a hugely creative environment around our exhibition. And once Sarah and I started to have a chat about this and I saw Sarah's eyes light up, I saw her aura glowing. I just, there was just a, a real crackle and an energy about her. And she was just so switched on and turned on about Mahalia Jackson that I just said, look, would you be prepared to have this conversation with me? for this podcast that I do because I think my listeners will be blown away by what we're talking about here so that's what we're going to bring you today I've had to wait for three years because of COVID and uh, the delay to the album which is um, Sarah Brown sings Mahalia Jackson does what it says in the tin and it's more than worth the wait because it was a very timeless conversation and here we are now off the back of COVID hopefully sometime soon at least and Sarah is able to now complete and release the album so the first single I'm on my way is out today on the 27th of January go and listen to it 
and be blown away. You're going to get a little teaser of Sarah's voice in this very podcast. Um, but going from Sarah's website is a little biography to give you a little bit more in-depth insight. So from her appearances on records with the likes of Pink Floyd, George Michael, Stevie Wonder and Simply Red, plus tours with Roxy Music, Simple Minds and Duran Duran, the English-born singer is one of the most prolific in-demand vocalists in the world. Sarah first discovered her singing voice as a child growing up in Aylesbury, a small market town northwest of London, where she listened to her parents' record collection, particularly discs by Mahalia Jackson and Jim Reeves. I was singing along and found it was quite easy, she remembers with a laugh. It was much easier than writing an essay at school. From a very young age, she was encouraged to perform at her local Pentecostal church, where she encountered a host of inspiring guitar-playing women in the mould of US gospel legend Sister Rosetta Tharp. The church was where I got my training, she says. It was drums, guitars and bass, Hammond organ, proper soul music and blues. Lots of clapping, lots of shouting, rolling in the aisles. It was full of passion. In her teenage years, Sarah also learned the healing powers of singing, helping to recover from her parents' breakup when she was only 14. Moving to Luton with her mother, she hooked up with a church that had affiliations in London, where her talents saw her being invited to join the inspirational choir of the Pentecostal Firstborn Church of the Living God. The choir was the first ever to be signed to a major label, CBS Records, releasing their debut album, Sweet Inspiration, in 1985, performing concerts around the world and appearing before the Queen in London on Madness's number two UK hit Wings of a Dove. As one of its lead singers, Sarah Brown went on to sing with the choir for 10 years, while at the same time being spotted by Stevie Wonder, led her to embark upon a parallel career as a session singer. The very important skill that I learned from the choir, she says, was just knowing how to listen to the voice you're working with and placing my tone with their tone. It was an approach that was to serve her very well throughout the 90s and beyond, firstly as one of the key singers of UK funk band Incognito, and then trumpeter James McMillan in the jazz duo Lush Life, whose 1996 album Let Somebody Love You yielded a number one single in Japan, and on through her live and recorded work with Simply Red. Through her singing with the latter, she was invited to audition for Roxy Music's reunion tour in 2001. The audition was absolutely amazing, she remembers. I turned up not having done any research or having really any understanding about Roxy Music. I had a big afro, jeans, t-shirt. Brian Ferry loved it and then I started singing. I knew I'd got the gig because I was singing. He came down and laid on the floor by the mic and put his hands up behind his head and just started smiling. I was the last girl to be seen and that gig changed my life. Her on-stage performances with Roxy Music also brought her to the attention of both Simple Minds and Duran Duran. Despite the fact that it took her three phone messages from the former singer Jim Kerr, Jim Kerr before she could decipher his Scottish accent and call him back. The latter's Simon Le Bon, meanwhile auditioned, hired her over the phone. Later she was to be invited by Pink Floyd singer guitarist David Gilmore to sing on the title track of the band's farewell album, The Endless River. Sarah Brown has now been a member of Simple Minds for close to 10 years, recording and travelling the world with the group. She feels that there's something special about the vocal bond she shares with Jim Kerr. Going back to the choir, she says, I think it's just understanding Jim's voice and the type of colour that he needs to weave in and out. He's an amazing singer and he doesn't need to need much. Just a little colour here and there. So Sarah Brown sings Mahalia Jackson. That's the project we're going to be talking about today. What were the origins of that? So Sarah says, the seed for the album was planted back some 20 plus years ago when I was singing backing vocals on the Roxy Music reunion tour. Waiting for soundcheck, I stood on the stage as Roxy's pianist Colin Good was warming up on an old blues tune by Mark Rainey. 
And as he played, I was immediately transported back to when I was eight and in church on a Sunday and these matriarchal figures, these big black mamas dressed like Audrey Hepburn, were bellowing out their Mahalia Jackson hymns and they were crying out from their very souls. And as I listened to Colin, I was crying too, lost in the music. And I'd vowed I'd pay my own homage to Mahalia one day. So I really do hope this, this conversation brings you even a percentage of the joy and inspiration that it gave me when we had it back in 2019. Um, Sarah's life is, is not a simple one. It's a very, very um, wavy, weavy, up and down, like a powerful life full of lessons um and, and i'm just so excited to see this project come out so get us your feedback over at ben Talon on the social media um and without further ado let's get to it the amount of projects that i've started and just got bored with and so not completed it and i thought to myself you know what i want to complete this and even if it does not sell to anyone other than my mother <laughs> I am so proud, I'm over it, I'm over worrying about who that marketplace is going to be and how successful it will be because for me the success is the completion of the project. I am I'm excited to hear about your I'm own, uh, your own um, approach to that to that astounding you know yes. life and career. Yes. But I mean let's first of all let's, let's just go back a little bit. I, I love to hear about people's childhoods a little bit and, and what were the earliest inclinations that you had this this spark, this creativity in you that led you to music. And were, is there any early conscious moments? I think that yes, I'd be lying if I said no. Um, I was brought up um, very in church. I was brought up black Pentecostal. Most Caribbeans had a hard life basically. So I would assess it as they had a really hard life. They needed something. It was either going to be drugs, alcohol, or church mm -hmm. and for many if they didn't start in church they ended up in church because their life was bloody difficult you know um so um i'm a child of the windrush um and my mother between both my mother and father my father was a complete he loved his, his marijuana he loved his black and he loved drinking excessively. He was a party animal. How he and my mum got together, my mum's like Mother Teresa, literally. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they got together. Obviously it was a sexual tension and I don't know, but, but they were together. Now, my father insisted that his children, certainly his girls, went to church. So it was convenient that my mum had a strong faith and as a result of that, I had no choice. Um, from the age, as, as young as I remember, I was going to church. And one of the things that, that, that's very prominent in Pentecostal, black Pentecostal churches, which is linked to the African thing, is the music. They express their emotions through the music, mm -hmm. through the drums, through the tambourines, all these percussive elements, um, stamping of the feet, clapping of the hands, it's all rhythmic. Um, and, and of course singing. So um, by the time I was about seven, I, I was coming from, my, my father drank a lot excessively and smoked an awful amount. And the byproduct of that was a really nasty temper. So by the time I was six, seven, I thought I was stupid, thick, ugly, useless. Because what came out of my dad's mouth was, you are ugly, you are stupid, you're gonna amount to nothing. So 
throughout all of this, I'm going to church every Sunday. I was asked to sing. Uh, I don't know, it was probably Amazing Grace, I can't remember now. But I was asked to sing and I thought, oh God, I'm scared, I'm not going to do this. But I sang and everybody loved it. And that was the turning point for me. As I said, I was about seven, seven, mm -hmm. eight. And this big matriarchal black woman came to me afterwards. Her name was Missionary Campbell. And she said to me, don't you ever stop singing. Mm. That was amazing. And she had tears in her eyes. Oh, wow. The church was crying. And I, whilst I was singing, I realised, all oh, right, this is all right. I'm not so <laughs> stupid. Something's working. Mm. Somebody likes what I'm doing. This is working, mate. This is okay. I quite, I kind of like this. Mm. And that was the journey. That was my, if you like, the, the flame that ignited in me this secret passion for singing. Mm -hmm. Did those, did those, this is, I asked this because this came up on the last interview I did actually, a very similar thing in terms of um, a less than perfect backgrounds. Um, mm. The guy interviewed had been beaten by his father and, mm. and he talked about then when he did arrive in the music industry as a, as a records company founder, oh. he, he felt invincible because he came from Glasgow to London oh, and because yeah. he'd had such a, a tough hurdle to get through early in his life, yeah. he said the volume was turned down on other things that might freak out a lot of people as yeah. in you know, talking to these big larger than life personalities and getting yeah. in there. How did you, I mean, seven years old is, is different. I mean, we're talking, he was much older when he came, mm -hmm. you know, 20s when he came to London. Yeah. But as you continue through that journey, did, did you find that the, that that background gave you a greater inner strength? Did it leave I you I think it vulnerable? gave me, it totally gave me an inner strength. Um, it gave me a grit. Because uh, I knew, I believed, my, I think for me, which is different to this guy that you're talking about from Glasgow, I believed the voice of my father, mm -hmm. which was, you are ugly, you are stupid, and you are going to amount to nothing. Mm. I believed it. And so I think um, as I got older and coming from a troubled home, education was difficult for me. I couldn't concentrate. I was, very, I was, a, fear, I was a child that was full of fear. I was frightened to lift my hands up to, to, to give the answer just in case I looked stupid. Mm. So, and then, of course, as I got older, I was frightened to, to love because I wouldn't be loved. I was frightened that I was never going to be loved back. So it grew, this thing in me grew massively. But by the time I was in my 20s and I had come into London to make money as a singer, I had gone to college, teacher training, and uh, the professor there... I failed my first year. The, the assignment that I put in came back at like 45 and I needed to get 47. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he said to me, Sarah, look, we all know that you want to sing. Why don't you just go and sing? Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, you know what? If I'm not going to do this teacher training, because I had the opportunity to, to go back and sit the paper, if I'm not going to do it, I'm going to have to give myself a 10-year plan here and assess how am I going to make money in the music because mm -hmm. I was still singing by that time I was still singing with the inspirational choir but I wasn't earning any money I was just doing it because I loved singing and I loved 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 the inspirational choir it was who I was mm -hmm. um but I was going to choir rehearsals with holes in my shoe yeah so 
something needed to change and I needed to tell my mum why was I leaving teacher training which is a sensible logical path mm -hmm. that's going to lead to sensible money to go into something fickle like singing especially in the pop industry why so I gave myself 10 years in which to stamp my mark establish who the the, the singers were the backing singers who were earning good money I established who they were and I said I listened to them and I was like I've been in the choir for many years. I can do just as good as you, even better. I wasn't a bitch, but I just knew. It was a game of chess. It's essential self-confidence. Totally. And then it was, I suppose, me standing up within myself, the child standing up within and saying to that voice that's saying you're useless, saying you can get stuffed. Mm. I can sing and I'm going to sing. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it's interesting because that, that was the thing that kept me going that inner voice, when I came into London, I was like, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make money, and nothing's going to get in the way. As soon as I stepped into London, my first job was, was with Incognito, and I was with Incognito for 10 years. Mm. Sang on the albums, toured, world tour, Japan, Australia, wow. Europe, the whole shebang. Um, Stevie Wonder came on stage with us, loved us, joined us, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, it was just a, a, a road that was a beautiful, exciting, educational, musical road for me. And my inner being was being established musically. Mm -hmm. I was being established. And although that was happening for me, I still would say to myself, Sarah, you're no good. They're going to find out in a minute that you can't really sing. Mm. And they're going to ask you to leave. Mm. That, that voice was always going on in my head. Yeah. And it's only now that... Since working with Incognito, I've gone on to work with Roxy Music. I've gone on to work with... And then when I did the reunion for the Roxy, that was so successful because um, I wasn't singing as a section. I was singing as a, 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 a singer beside Brian. Mm -hmm. I was ghosting all that Brian was doing, most of what Brian was doing, I was ghosting. It was a phenomenal position for me mm. and a great turning point because then um, Simon Le Bon came to see the show Jim Kerr came to see the show and both those guys asked me to work for them Wow! in the same capacity that I was working mm -hmm. for Roxy. So it took, me a, it took me out of the section singing of backing singing, which mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that, but I felt more comfortable. Deep down inside, I wanted to sing. Mm -hmm. And I think deep down inside, I was capable of singing within my own right, still backing, but just as one person. Yeah. And um, that journey, um, it was a major learning curve, you know, to sing ghost to ghost a giant like Brian Ferry. It's pressure. Proper hardcore pressure. And you better get it right, because that guy doesn't mess about. His timing is next to none. Mm. It's deliberate how he sings. Every single sentence. And you have to get that timing spot on, mm -hmm. top of Brian. Yeah. Don't mess about. <laughs> so um, that, you know, so, so the springboard, if you like, from the choir, from inspirational choir, springing into um, incognito, then springing from incognito, acid jazz band, which was like an underground cultish thing at the time, to then springing into working for Simply Red, then from Simply Red going straight to the Roxy 
which was a major turning point. Mm -hmm. Then from Roxy, Brian held me on for a good seven years. After Brian, during Brian, I worked with Simon Le Bon in the same capacity when Duran Duran reformed to come back. They asked me to come and do their arena dates in, in, in the UK. Um, and it was all about, Sarah, look yourself in the mirror. And even though you might not believe it, you better dig deep and you better sing. Mm -hmm. From your ass. <laughs> I was expecting that. Sing from that. your ass, <laughs> and make sure you sing. And so, and that has taken me to now. I'm working with Simple Minds. Jim Kerr has been an absolute giant of an inspiration for me, and has teased me. And he's, he looks at me, and he looks into my soul, mm. and he's like, "Sarah, I know you're a chicken." But look, get out there. Mm -hmm. Get out there and sing. Is it a case of, it sounds to me like it's not. It's about not completely drowning out the, that, the lack of self-confidence that you touched upon, but just, to, just making sure that the, your ability and your confidence in your singing is louder than that. Is that it's, it's allowing the self-doubt to, to be there, but also al allowing who I am, because I am part of that self-doubt, but allowing myself to understand the self-doubt. It's, it's just there, but actually, Sarah, you've actually got talent. Mm -hmm. you've, you can do this. You know, you've been doing it for many years and you do know how to connect with your audience. You do know how to love your voice and how to heal yourself from your singing. Share. Mm -hmm. with others share with on with others the truth which is yeah i am insecure and i do think any minute now someone's gonna knock on my door and say listen you ain't that good mm -hmm. i do think jennifer hudson's gonna say listen darling you ain't that good <laughs> you can't sing as good but, as me i mean that but that comes from a, you know a place of, of uh, worse adversity than a lot of people might have to suffer However, in this industry, I've seen every every single person that I've met, no matter how talented, deep down they all have that. They all, and they this all is what I understand um, now. Imposter within them, they or do. what they feel to be an imposter, and it's really not. But but we all suffer from that. I know? love that. I love that um, title, imposter. Yeah. Because of course, that's what it is. My father, I've forgiven him. I love him dearly. I celebrate the the good parts of my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, and. Because of that, I'm able to accept what you're saying and understand where you're coming from. It's an imposter. Yeah. My dad spoke foolishly and those words took root. Yeah. You know, but the root is an imposter, like, like, like a weed in the garden. Mm -hmm. And you have to just keep weeding it out. You, you know? really do, because you you're just, right, that's a good analogy, because up. it completely, yeah, it continues it, as yeah, a cycle, it? does. Steve Webb was the same. I, I remember reading something about Steve Webb. It's Steve Webb, isn't it? The, the computer guy. Oh, Steve Jobs. Um, Steve Jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, he, has, he had a similar vibe going on there in his head. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, if, if these giants, as you say, have to deal with the imposter, then who am I? I just, you just need to understand that it's going to be there. Each time that I go on stage with Simple Minds or anyone... But now I've been with Simple Minds for 12 years and I love every bit of it and I feel like I'm a part of them now. Mm -hmm. um, and every time I go out, just before 
um, I'm, I'm stepping on stage. I feel the weight of responsibility and I feel like, oh my God, I need to go to the toilet mm-hmm. and have a proper colon extraction. <laughs> proper colon extraction, <laughs> properly. Yeah. You know, out of control. And it's just who I am. Yeah. It's just who I am. It's never going to change. Mm-hmm. But I have to dance with it and, and know that when I'm in that, once I get on that stage, once I've rehearsed and I know what I'm doing, the imposter will be kicked to the kicked to the Yeah, ground. yeah. I, and I think that's, um, you know, it's one of the biggest themes that always comes up on this and what so many people love to hear about in others to, to remind them that we're, we, you know, we all have a degree of that. Massively. That from individual to individual. Yeah. But it's just there because, you know, I mean, and you're a professional too, so of course you get the, the fear and, and otherwise you, complacency might be allowed to creep in. Totally, you know? um, totally. Yeah, it's just, and, totally. You know, it's the same any time I get a new project and I look at a blank page, I, I, I'm sure that I've lost it every time. But, yeah. You know, but then the first mark of ink that goes down that I like, I'm down, You're, you're I'm in the right flow, in you're again. in the flow. Yeah, completely. You connect, Yeah. you connect with your greatness. Yeah, you feel I, I feel it's like connecting with my, my purpose, mm-hmm. my vocation, and my vocation and my purpose is about my greatness because my greatness, my vocation, my purpose makes me happy. Mm-hmm. This Mahalia Jackson project has been a torment, but it's also been like a, a, a piece of therapy mm. because my life has been, to go back to your original question, sorry I divulged there and digressed and all the rest of it, but my life was troublesome. My father beat my mum up mm-hmm. in front of us as children and he was a tormented soul. Wanted to be back in Jamaica as the farmer that he is was, you know, um, and didn't understand what it was to be an employee because he was an employer in Jamaica, had his own land and was employing people to work his land. Mm-hmm. So he didn't do well. And that anger rose in that man. He was like a devil. Mm-hmm. And so we were poor. Both my parents worked around the, the clock, but we were poor. I would watch my father. He was given the best joints of meat. We were given the bone. But my mum was a brilliant cook. So the gravy on the potato was incredible. You know what I mean? Mm. A la carte every yeah. time. Um, but I think that's where I understand Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson um, was born in 1911, 46 years after slavery. So although slavery was abolished, we all know in America and in this country, the racism, the, the segregation handed out to the blacks were and still is today disgusting. The poverty that the white, the, the white counterparts were dealing with was not going to be anywhere as bad as the slaves, the black slaves, what they were dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, Mahalia was um, raised and lived f- until she was about 16, I believe, um, by the riverside of Mississippi, the Mississippi River, in a wooden shack. Mm-hmm. Um, she lost her mother at five. Um, and she was raised by her very, very religious grandmother. So knew nothing but church. She, she didn't know how to be ambitious about work because 
they weren't, blacks weren't encouraged. Although slavery was abolished, blacks were not encouraged. The majority of blacks were not encouraged to be ambitious, to become teachers, to become lawyers, mm -hmm. to become entrepreneurs. They were, she was going to be a household maid. Yeah. She was going to iron the shirts and wash the nappies of these white children. And that was her, that's where she was heading. Um, but Mahalia found comfort in her singing. And her faith, she was a faith-led woman, she depended on her faith to give her understanding and forgiveness to the white oppressors, if you like. Mm -hmm. She worked extensively with Martin Luther King. It's the peaceful route. And I believe that she found that, um, she found that energy, she found the um, conviction through her faith. So the passion and love that she had for singing, she discovered that she, was, she had a voice. Others discovered it. Other talented people um, discovered that Mahalia, by the time Mahalia was 16, was a beautiful singer and wanted to give her classical lessons. She said no. Mm. They also wanted her to sing blues and jazz in the saloons. She said no. Because of her strong faith. Um, and she could have been as big as Ma Rainey, Ma Bessie, Bessie Smith, these big matriarchal jazz types, she could have been way as big as them. And they inspired her, right? I mean, I, I was, when yes, I, when I was they inspired her. Well, about well Mahalia. they inspired Mahalia, and Mahalia took the inspiration, I guess, and took it back into church. The churches were, at that time, were, if you like, a holding pen for the obedient blacks. And the sound, so the sound that was coming out of the Baptist church, if you like, was, so Amazing Grace would be, Amazing Grace. Mahalia would take Amazing Grace and sing it, Amazing Grace. She took the blues. She took, and blues mm. was the pain mm -hmm. of the slave. So what the white man turned blues into, you don't even hear blues. The white man said blues, but by the time Rolling Stones and all these other bands um, got hold of blues and turned it into some, whatever they've turned it into. Blues is quite complex. When you listen to Blind Willie Johnson, he's, he's splitting notes all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy forum. So, so you know, so, so she took this blues back. Because Ma Bessie, but, uh, Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey and these big singers, they weren't able to sing blues in the way that they wanted to sing blues because the white audiences didn't want to hear it that way. Mm. They were singing a more ragtime type of blues. So Mahalia Jackson had the ragtime thing, but she also said, you know what? I'm going to sing Amazing Grace the way that I know how it would have sounded on the slave ship. Mm. Because it came from the slave ship. The melody came from the slave ship. Mm -hmm. But the words were written by, is it something Newton? 
Yes. Um, is it John Newton? John Newton. John Newton. Right. Yeah. John Newton wrote it. But the, the melody he heard from the slave ship. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you, that melody is not going to be... Mm-hmm. It ain't. Mm-hmm. Because when you've got shackles around your ankles and it's cutting into you, yeah. and you've got shit all around you and it smells really nasty and you've got period smells coming out, you're not singing like that. No. I'm sorry, but you're not. So... I feel my childhood, of course it wasn't like Mahalia's. It was nowhere near as rough as Mahalia's. But my childhood was rough. But and there are parallels. I mean, immediately, when you totally, told me your story just now, my head was a little immediately going, oh my God, there are so many... Yeah, totally. Can, you know, I can, totally. I can see the correlation here. Totally. Um, I, I, I didn't... Because my dad um, lacked confidence in himself, my dad couldn't read or write, he projected that onto his children, mm-hmm. you know, onto his sons, onto his daughters. Mm. And I, unfortunately, took it in, held on to it, and during my educational years, instead of enjoying it, I was frightened of it. Mm-hmm. And so when I left education, I had no ambition. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe that I could do any, anything better than clean or work in a factory, um, which is parallel to Mahalia. Mm-hmm. So the way that she found herself through her hymns. I found myself through my hymns. I wasn't allowed to listen to pop music. I wasn't allowed to sing pop music. So it was through the hymns at church where I found my voice and where I discovered comfort. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I loved, my father was playing reggae in the home. So I heard reggae and he was playing early Aretha. Mm-hmm. So I heard Aretha. So I, I heard Mahalia and I heard Aretha. And I heard reggae, mm. Bob Marley. To be honest, I don't need to really hear much more. I found what, what made me happy. Yeah. And what inspired the soul in me to sing, I found it in those three things. No, I mean, in turn, you can't... Powerful, powerful is not, isn't a word that does it justice to what Mahalia Jackson would have had to go through. Mm. In those times, not just to mention the, the, the glass ceiling that the you talked ceiling. about in terms of... Um, things, you know, those invisible things put in yeah. place, whether it's society, whether it's family, that, that yeah. hold you down, that shut down the, the confidence in a, in a fledgling person. Yes. Um, but also, just like you said, about the racial issues at the time, the environment she was growing up in, the poverty, mm-hmm. you, there are so many reasons not to do what she did. Yeah. And that would be, even if she was to go and sing the blues, that would apply. But to not only do that, but to take that and stick to her guns with faith and to take that Massively. back into the church and go her own road. And then the church say to wow. her, see you later. She, 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 she went to Chicago mm-hmm. and she was singing on the street corners, hence the ability to project the way that Mahalia projected. She was, I don't know that there was anyone as brilliant as her in projecting without a blinking mic. And and that feverish way that she has about Mm. her, you know, the rock and roll thing that she had in her, which obviously came from the Bessie Smiths and the ragtime that was going on. And she heard the jazz players in the saloon bars. She heard them. So she took that on her own with um, a piano player or an organ player and went into churches and sang. Yeah. Or she would just go in by herself because she was looking for churches to join and the churches, often the churches that she would knock upon were just too tame. 
They were black churches, but they didn't want to hear the blues in her. They wanted to hear the stripped down, lovely, calm, white, accepted, amazing grace. Thank you very much. She was somewhere in between the two. She was totally in between the two. She was totally in between the two. And they they, they would throw her out. They'd throw her out. Wow. Throw her out. When did you first become aware of Malia? I became aware of Malia by the time I was about eight. Yeah. because my eldest sister loved Mahalia Jackson and were you um, aware of her own uh, struggles and parallel, no, parallels we talk about not at all you don't at that age I guess do you? not at all not until it was you know this project the Mahalia Jackson project has been in me for, as I said for the last 20 years and I've been the imposter in me has been saying Sarah you cannot do this you can't do it because you can't sing like Mahalia you can't sing anywhere near as good mm. and I would think of other singers that I know, Hilda Campbell, she's a great gospel singer. I used to sing with her in the Inspirational Choir. She still sings today. Um, phenomenal. And I would think, yeah, I'm going to put this together and I'm going to get Hilda to sing it. Or I'm going to get Faye Simpson to sing it. Or I'm going to get anyone else but not me. Fast forward from 20 years to now, what's happened? What's happened is Sarah's had a divorce. I lost everything. And, I did, and so I felt that I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care who was going to laugh at me. And I don't care now who's going to laugh at me. I've got nothing to lose. I've lost the big five-bedroom house in Tunbridge Wells. I've lost the husband. Do you know what I mean? Well, actually, yeah, that's gone. And so I just, that's what's different now it led me to think, what is it about Mahalia, Sarah? Why do you keep coming back to Mahalia? Simple Minds, in the first, I've been working for them for 12 years, and this is the first year in 2019 that they've had a break, right? And in my career that spanned over 30 years, this is the first time I've taken a year off. Mm. And in this year, I've had to deal with my divorce, getting over my divorce, which was last year. And I just said, you know what, sod it. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this tribute to Mahalia Jackson. So in the process of taking it on, I had to sit down, listen to the interviews of Mahalia and listen to her talk so honestly and so innocently about her own journey. And it's just made me realise, Jesus Christ, I've got a lot in common with this woman. And I love her to bits. Mm-hmm. She's sensual. She's sexual. She's... A woman of faith, complete faith. She will not be swayed. She accepts everybody, black and white. She's able to forgive. She's able to understand difference. That's me. Mm -hmm. That's me. I'm extremely trusting to a fault, actually. Mm -hmm. So why shouldn't I do Mahalia? And why shouldn't I take it on and give it the tribute from my expression, which is what I've done? Yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the actual the project and what the plan is. Um... Well, the, the project, um, right, as I said, I re- first I, I did my first recording in 2011. I recorded a song called It's In My Heart, This Melody of Love, This is, it, His Eyes Is On The Sparrow, which is a, which is a hymn, mm-hmm. an old hymn that Mahalia sang. I recorded that um, with the fantastic Colin Good, um, who I met in um, Roxy Music. And I also recorded another track called It's In My Heart, This Melody of Love Divine. And I recorded it, just me and piano. The treatment that I gave it 
or that was given to it, I didn't like. It was recorded by a guy who um, was a DJ and he sucked all the life out of the performance. And so my voice was sounded really isolated to the piano and I didn't like it. And so what it did was kick me back into the imposter land of Sarah, you're shit. Right. You can't yeah. do it. So hence now, 2019, I'm like, Sarah, get back on with it. Give it a treatment. And my whole thing, what I've decided to do is where Mahalia listened to what was coming out of the saloons back in the 1920s and back in the 1925s and 30s, where she was listening to this, she took that into her solo performance. And what I've done, and the churches didn't like it. So what I've done, I've been like the, if you like, the imposter that was in Mahalia. Mm -hmm. The imposter that was in Mahalia was the rebellious, I'm gonna go, so move on up a little higher. I'm gonna move to the children of the ghetto. Yeah, I'm gonna move on up. That was a great song that she sang, and she recorded that. And that was the recording that done really well for, for Mahalia. I'm going to move on up a little higher. Mm. And so what I've done is I have said, you know what? Take the upright bass, get the honky-tonk piano, get the organ, which would be the church side, and get the swing jazz of the drum. I've put those elements together with my expression and what I have is a combination of what was going on in Mahalia's head when she was singing. And so if I want to strip it back to just piano and me, honky-tonk piano and me, I can. But for this body of work that I've done, it's upright bass, Tom Wheatley on upright bass, Colin Good on piano, um, Luke Smith as the organ player and Jerome Brown, phenomenal um, drummer on drums. Um, and these expressions, so the jazz, the swing jazz of the drum comes together with the early jazz honky-tonk type playing of the piano, as Mahalia called it, the honky-tonk. Mm. That's what she heard coming out of the saloon bar. And the churches would look down on that music and say, that's the devil's music. But she had that going on in her head. Mm. And you can hear it when she sings Move On Up A Little Higher. She's mm -hmm. in the saloon bar. Mm -hmm. She's in the saloon bar. And she's more jazz and she's more sexy than Bessie Smith. Mm. Definitely more. She's, and the church, in fact, they embraced her. Eventually, they embraced her and she was singing to the masses. She wasn't just singing to the churches because people who didn't go to church loved her rock and roll. They loved her blues. They loved her, the, the, the movement that Mahalia would bring into her performance, just standing there on her own mm. with a piano. She was stamping her feet and she was clicking her finger and she was giving it that, that swing. I'm going to move on up a little higher. Mm. Wait. You know, she's, it's all there. She's got that blues and she's got that, you know? Yeah. And the, her audiences. So by the time she was singing at Carnegie Hall, the first time they heard her, they didn't know whether they were on foot or horseback. Mm. 
because it was like, Jesus Christ, what's, what's this? What's this, this black woman in front of me, big breasts, small waist, big ass, big mama, and she's gone from the church covering her up in a gown, which is what they used to do, she, they would put her in a gown because it would cover up a Rubenesque figure. Because mm. when she would move, you know, she's giving it the... She was moving and everything was moving. So her breasts were going from left to right. Yeah. Uh, hips were swinging from left to right in opposite directions. And she was a big, beautiful, Rubenesque, mm. lovely voice coming out of this dark, gorgeous woman. You know, she was giving it some in church. So, of course, the church was like, oh, my God, we've got to cover this up. <laughs> yeah. But by the time then she started earning... Best bits of you, aren't they? Proper. <laughs> cover it up. Cover, cover. Typical of the church. Yeah. So, the church now, she's outgrown the church, if you like, because it's not just the church that wants her. Mm. It's the open market that wants her. It's Carnegie Hall. It's the rich man that can afford to go yeah, to yeah, Carnegie yeah. Hall well, I mean, that yeah, wants her. The CV of venues is incredible, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, the Royal Hall, Albert Hall. She was the first black woman to sing at the Royal Albert Hall. Did you wow. know that? I, you, only because you told me. And she, there is a picture of her now at the Royal Albert Hall. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mahalia Jackson. I'm right. And then um, in, in front of the Queen, mm. Buckingham Palace. You know, her journey took her. Mm. And the, the, her conviction, and the reason why I want to do the tribute to Mahalia is because for all of those youngsters today on Britain's Got Talent, The Voice, um, all of these kind of shows where young people today are, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, are looking for fame yeah. rather than wanting to connect. Mahalia wanted to connect. She had a vocation, she had a purpose, and her purpose was to sing, and to sing her story. And it's, and it's fueled by feeling and instinct. Fueled and, by that. And everything that was dear to her, not yes. what she felt was wanted of her. Not what is, she what, felt. I think what you hit upon with totally, talent shows. Totally, yeah. totally. The, the, the whole talent show thing, if you're not careful, guys, whoever's listening, you know, you can become a puppet. And you can become extremely unhappy. And before you know it, you're hooked on drugs, you're hooked on alcohol, mm -hmm. because that's what you need to get through. Mahalia didn't because need that to get through. you were looking for something that you once felt very purely. Yes. And it's, you've done everything that goes against that because you've been led by what you've By the machine. Is, yeah, the machine. The machine to what? make money. And for me, what's lovely here, um, Jim and Charlie, I owe them so much. Because they have looked at me, they've looked into my soul and they're like, Sarah, it's okay. Just do this. Mm -hmm. We've got you. Mm -hmm. And they have got me because I work in Simple Minds. I love it. I get paid. I can come back and I can do a project like this, you know, mm -hmm. and I can pay musicians, great musicians like Colin Good, Tom Wheatley, Luke Smith and Jerome Brown. These are musicians in the UK and because of Simple Minds I can pay them and I've got Pete Walsh as who's going to be mixing the album for me. Pete Walsh is the, is the great man that worked on Simple Minds. Mm. Pete Walsh is a giant. <laughs> He's a giant, you know, yeah. and he is going to be working on my album. Mm-hmm. 
and he loves the concept. I've had nothing but goodwill yeah. shown to me for the making of this album and it makes me humble. And it makes it doesn't just make me hum humble, it's tapped into the the child that was abused, it's tapped, it's tapped into the child that was told you were useless, you're ugly, and you're going to amount to nothing. And what it's done, it's healed me from within. And it's made me realise, Sarah, run with this. Run with it. And if you don't earn £50, run with it and love it. Love every single second of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm doing. I'm mm. enjoying it. I'm loving it in the same way that Mahalia loved it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think everything you said there about the feeling and the way Mahalia channeled everything that she experienced, <sighs> that she felt that she wanted to do in her, on, on her terms. On her would terms. It, would it be fair to say, because you said that you've had this project with you for 20 years, yeah. but we've also spoken about the fact that you're doing this now at this stage yeah. of your career. Mm -hmm. Is, would it be fair to say that you it had to be this way, that you had to go through other things you I had to lose everything. I had to, to lose to, everything. To do it with feeling in yeah. a way that is right for not just a, a Mahalia, um, don't know, tribute to the right word, but, the, but, but for you for, as a musician. Totally. As a, as a, the, as parallel, a the parallel here is that Mahalia had had nothing. Mm -hmm. I had nothing. I was a working class girl. I gave myself a 10 year plan in order to become successful. How I measured success was I would be able to buy myself a Mercedes car and buy myself a Georgian house. That's exactly in the 10th year. And, and that um, the artists would call me. And in the 10th year, that's exactly what happened. I had the money to buy myself a Mercedes. I could buy myself a five bedroom uh, Victor early Victorian house. And I... Um, was being called. Jim Kerr called me for this job. Brian Ferry called me, and uh, who was the other? And Simon LeBon called me. I auditioned over the phone with Simon LeBon. I gave myself a ten-year plan. So I worked really hard. Yeah. And I worked to acquire all I had. And I thought to myself, okay, as a working-class girl, um, my husband wasn't earning as much as me, but it's okay. We we can make it work. We can make it work. It doesn't matter. If he's not working, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So as a working class girl, that spirit's in me, fine. What happened? I lost everything. I lost everything. So here I am. I've got Jack. Mm -hmm. I had properties. I lost it all. So what have I got to lose? I was the same as Mahalia. I'm the same as Mahalia. Mm -hmm. I've got Jack to lose. Mm -hmm. I've got everything to gain here. And that's my... One of my, one of my gaining my stability, my inner strength, and I did and a total and utter belief in my faith. Mm -hmm. I believe in my God, and real, I believe that my foundations. God, you know, you've gained the, the real you know I've understood keystones of happiness. Yeah, I have. It's not about. I'm now in a relationship with someone who I have nothing. He has very little, <laughs> but what we do have, I have. Belly laughter mm -hmm. with him. Yeah, I laugh from the foot up, mm -hmm. and he and out, of that, me. and out of that place comes beautiful things that that, that will that will bring you what you want. Totally, you know, to get out totally. To the side and, um, totally. Is it is that? It sounds like an obvious question, but is that something that you channeled into the work that adversity and that, and, that, and that kind of pursuit of? those wholesome things in terms of the actual, the singing and the recording mm. and, and the preparation. Is that something that, that you... Is that something that I've channeled into? with feeling, yeah. Yeah, completely. If I understand you right, have I channeled 
all that I am and learned from into this body mm. of work? Absolutely. My This has been a journey archetype for me. Uh, I remember learning about the journey archetype at college and exactly what's happened. When I started in the Inspirational Choir, um, I was coming up to London, Islington, um, with holes in my shoes. Mm -hmm. You know, my mother had divorced my father. We were living in a battered wives hostel um, with my me and my two brothers and my mum. When we when we opened the door to our bedroom, because we all um, for a year we lived in one bedroom together. And when we opened up the door to that bedroom, there was human feces on the beds in the room. Wow. And I clung to my faith then. That was something that took me through that very difficult time. I had to watch my mum cry, go to work, come back, cook food for us, and we eat in that bedroom. You know, we washed in the bedroom for a whole year. And I've, I, my faith developed from that time. I came away from my faith as I became more successful and I earned money and I, I, I came away from my faith. But then when I lost everything with my husband and the divorce, it's brought me back to my faith. And it's just taken me to a place where I'm at the beginning of my singing career. I'm at the beginning of the early stages of my voice. And I've that journey coming right back has led me to Mahalia Jackson. It was Mahalia Jackson that I was listening to at seven, eight, nine, ten, mm. And now at the ripe, beautiful age that I'm at, I'm now again really not just listening to Mahalia, but learning about her mm. and understanding just how close our paths have been. I understand the woman. I totally understand her. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's absolutely um, crucial to fight through whatever challenges are put there because look at that legacy that that, that, yeah. that Mahalia left and, totally, and surely the, totally. the idea that that through your work now um that you can shine a light an even greater light on Mahalia and yeah. maybe bring her to an audience that isn't yet aware of her young yeah, people today completely. and give them the courage and strength that Mahalia gave to you that's an incredible totally feeling. this month I think it's on the 15th I'm I'm giving a talk at um ACM it's a college here um in London um, it's a college here in London called ACM. I'm just going to see if I can, uh, yeah, um, ACM, I can't even remember what it stands for now, but basically, um, I'm giving a talk, yeah, the Academy of Contemporary Music, um, and the big college is in Surrey, and there's another college here just over in um, Clapham Common. Last year, they invited me to give a talk, and they've invited me back. And wherever I can talk about the artist getting in touch with who you really are and not comparing yourself to Beyonce, Jennifer Hudson, Mariah Carey, Spice Girls, take that. Be who you are. Mm -hmm. For so long, I was running away from who I am. And I've been very lucky because Brian Ferry looked me in the face and said, what are you doing here? Pretty much. Um, Mick Hucknall looked me in the face and told me, Sarah, you're good. The next prophet is Jim Kerr Look me, and, and, and Charlie Birchall. Mm-hmm. Both of those guys are prophets in my life. God has put them in my life for a reason. You know, I believe that. Whether you believe in God or not, the universe then 
I'll use that language. The universe has put those people in my life for a reason. And those people have said to me, Sarah, come on. There's more to you mm -hmm. that you can do here. And it's forced me to look myself in the mirror and really look at who's there. Not comparing myself to anybody else, but look at who's there and take what little gold is there and work with, within the constraints of that. There's more than a little gold. Massively, but the fact <laughs> that I've fantastic the, energy. Well, yeah. the fact that I've tapped into my seed, the shell, which is the limitation, has bust open. That's what's happened here, mm -hmm. and I am growing, and I'm in the process, and I can feel that I'm growing, and I now don't need my husband. Mm -hmm. I thought I needed him. I don't need the five-bedroom house. What I need is my purpose. I need my vocation. I need mm -hmm. this kind of unhoned gifting that's within me that makes me happy. Mm -hmm. And I can say to any of those students, when I go to talk to them on the 15th of this month, I will be saying, this is who I am. For years I thought that I was nothing. I thought that my gifting compared to others was so small, it was insignificant. And all I could do was stand behind the likes of Simply Red, Simple Minds, mm -hmm. Roxy, Stevie Wonder. Stand behind them. But what my God, my faith, my purpose, my gifting has taught me through Mahalia is that my gift is a precious, beautiful piece of rare gold. And I have discovered it. And because I've discovered it, I know I'm rich. Big thank you to Sarah Brown for taking the time to sit down and blow me away with such an incredible, inspiring story. So I hope you go and take a listen to I'm On My Way Today. It's out to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the passing of the Queen of Gospel Music, Mahalia Jackson. Sarah is the epitome of, of what we can be when we, when we find our way in life and we find our way to believe in what we're doing and what we're passionate about, what we're good at, what comes to us and feels damn good and i hope you found yours and if you haven't and if it doesn't feel that good change it go and find it make it work it might take years but i hope sarah's story will remind you that it is more than worth it um so sarah's gonna be back on the road before too long with simple minds if you want to see her do that stuff too what a story i mean i've been desperate to release this thing for three years now and um, i'm i'm really glad i waited until i did because well you know, it had to be that way because it was only going to be to promote Sarah's work. But there were times when I really thought about just splurging it out there because I just, you know, I couldn't bear the idea of it not seeing light of day. Such a powerful conversation. So thanks again to Sarah. Thank you for listening. I hope you're well. I hope you're staying creative. Get us hit up at Ben Talon on the social media. I want to hear your story. I will share your work. I will consider you for the podcast. So let me know. Give me a little message. Hello at bentalon.com. Um, have a great week, guys. Thank you to the sponsors, illustrationx.com, the AOI, the Association of Illustrators, the AOI.com. Um, enjoy the rest of your week. Don't forget to check out the thread I mentioned at the top of the show on my Twitter, pins to the top of my tweet at the minute, and also check out the article on Creative Review about focus and creativity. Have a good one, guys. Nice one. We'll see you very soon. Bye.